Welcome to this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I am your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. You're about to hear my discussion with pediatric urologist, Dr. Andrew Friedman, and I ask him all of the most common questions I get from patients related to a child's penis. For example, we talk about child's penis sizes. How do we know what is normal? How do we clean a penis? Is a circumcision a good idea? Can my child touch their penis too much? And what are signs of testicular emergencies? I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, I would so appreciate if you were to subscribe, leave a five-star review, and even better, share with a friend who may find this information helpful. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I'm really excited. Uh, We have a phenomenal guest today, Dr. Andrew Friedman. I actually get a lot of questions from families about their little children's penises and questions about what's normal. So this may sound like a funny question, but I'm hoping just to help people feel reassured out there. A lot of babies, uh, parents are concerned that their child's penises are too small. Um, What's your experience? Do you think, and I'll tell you, you know, what I feel, but do you ever, just to let parents know, do you ever feel like that's a real thing? Like how often is there really such a thing as micro penis or a penis that's not normal? Yeah. 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 Let me put this into context. So, um, uh, I've been doing this for 25 years. Okay. Okay. The, the, I've accurately diagnosed a microphallus, uh, probably five times in my career. I mean, it's really, really rare. And admittedly, I, I, I've missed one or two cause I tend to be a little, tend to think everything's okay. But so <laughs> maybe I have missed one or two in a, the in, in chronologist caught it. But in terms of really having microphallus, these are really rare. Usually, they're associated with a lot with other significant anatom other significant diseases. So mostly, like for example, a child who has panhypopituitarism. So their their, their whole pituitary system is not working. It, it shows up. That's sort of Prater Willi syndrome. They have other hypotonia, other you know things that tip them off. Um, so or they have other um, uh, you know they'll have bilateral undescended testicles and a scrotum that's really underdeveloped. So a normal healthy kid with normal scrotum and two testicles, you know, truly having just purely isolated um, uh, microphallus is exceedingly, exceedingly rare. What we have instead is an epidemic of chubby babies. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. And this is, you know, when I do the cir- I do circumcisions in the office and I see them at 10 days and I always tell the families when I see them, I say, listen, eight months from now, this penis is going to disappear. And they're always like, you know, what does that mean? And I said, because when they get you know, the penis is fixed, the pubic bone is attached. The skin and fat is not. So the babies get chubby. And when they get chubby, that skin and fat rides up over the penis. So the penis gets swallowed up and you can't see it. And then the families get really worried about their penis. And they call it an innie or the cave dweller or turtle. You hear all these great, you know, descriptive <laughs> terms. But they're just chubby babies. And when you push the fat down, the penis pops out and it looks fine. And over time, the you know the penis will grow and the fat will go away and they'll all be fine. And I think you know the other problem that we have is we see kids, I often see kids who are pre-adolescent, right? Who are you know that nine to twelve year old range who haven't hit puberty yet. They're ten or you know one, and um, they think their penis is too small. These are oftentimes you know again chubby kids. And what I try to explain to them is if you look at the growth curve of your body, it's like this, right? But the growth curve of your penis is that. And it doesn't show up that well. There we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the growth curve of penis is really, really flat okay. until you hit puberty. So when you're nine years old or 10 years old, the, the split between the growth of your body and the growth of your penis is the as greatest amount. 
So you have experience like, well, why does my 10-year-old's penis look like my six-year-old's penis? They look at the curve on the chart. They are the same. Right. There may be one centimeter difference, but this kid's, you know, 60 pounds heavier. It's like, that's the difference. And so, you know, all it's just a matter of they is that you have to take into account the size of the penis, not only with their age, but their pubertal status. And that they all turn out to be normal in the end. I mean, really, truly having a small penis is extremely uncommon. The other problem that we have is when you ask people to like think of a penis, right? Like get a mental image of a penis. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I guarantee you it's an erect adult male penis. Okay. Right? Because we don't think about what a flaccid penis looks like. We don't see, you know, flaccid penises in art. We don't see flaccid penises on TV. Uh, so we don't see what, you know, what a flaccid penis. So everyone's mental picture is an adult penis. Now, the size variance of penises, even for adults, in the flaccid state is a relatively wide range. Mm. In the erect state, it's a relatively narrow range. So all sorts of sizes and shapes you know, in the flaccid state is really very normal. Some people get better, more enhancement during erection, and some people get less enhancement during erection. And so, But the problem is, is that they're looking at these little boys. Most people have no idea what these things are supposed to look like. Right. Uh, they had a very limited experience with them, and they have this mental picture of this you know, uh, cartoon erect penis. And so it makes it very hard for families to make it feel like normal because, you know, it doesn't help say, well, it doesn't look like dad. It's like, okay, you know, he's four, he's four. It's not supposed to look like that. So, <laughs> so, the, so the journey is at what you're saying until puberty. And then most of the time well, by far, kids are just fine. Are they end up being well, just you'll, fine? right. Most kids are fine. You, if you really want to assess it, you need to push the fat down. If you want to assess the length, you have to do a stretched penile length. Okay. So you need to push down, measure from the pubic bone to the stretched out tip. And then there are nomograms to, to measure that to see if it's within the normal range. So if you have a child who's otherwise healthy, you know, most of the time it really is fine. They're just chubby. If you push the fat away, it'll look like a normal penis. If you're really concerned, it can be measured. And then you can, you know, see an endocrinologist and they can do an evaluation. There's no real, we don't do it because there's no real surgical options. Uh, and all the endocrinologists do is they can give you, you know, testosterone shots to kind of boot, you know, boost it up mostly they're looking for do you have some other underlying you know condition right that this is a part of but it's really it's it's so over there's so much more anxiety than there really needs to be because we live in a very interesting interesting culture where we're very phallic centric and very phallic concerned right but very undereducated about the phallus right and, and even more undereducated about the foreskin so it's like I mean, it's we're very true. worried about something we don't know very much about it's very true <laughs> no i the common with the common scenario i get is i'll have like a nine month visit or you know somewhere between six and nine months when the kid's really chubby and i'll see the dad you know concerned and really peering over my shoulder when i examine the genitals and I know what their question is. It's almost always they're concerned that it's too small and where did it go? Right. And you're right. It's usually just a chubby baby. Like yeah, because they're expecting it to be this like long, you know, hot dogs hanging off their body. And it's not like that. It's just, you know, it's this little, this little mushroom because it's covered with, a, you know, this much penis and that much fat. Right, <laughs> That's right, the problem. Right. <laughs> so, so now bringing back to foreskin. So you mentioned foreskin, something that we're, a lot of us are unfamiliar with. Um, just so people can know, um, how, how do you recommend cleaning a foreskin? Are there any times you see families where they cleaned improperly and it, and it led to an, an unnecessary pediatric urology visit? Do you have any advice for parents just for prevention? Yeah. yeah. So, so keep in mind 
for the children who are intact, we have an intact foreskin. Um, the foreskin is supposed to be over the head and, and tight at the beginning. Everybody has where you can't pull it back, or we call phimosis. That's the normal state. That's physiologic. Yes. Over time, the foreskin matures in two ways. That tight ring at the top widens, so it starts to reveal the, the head of the penis. And inside, that skin is, is actually affixed to the head of the penis. If you look at it microscopically, it's one layer. Eventually, splits into two layers. And then it doesn't always split evenly. It doesn't split from the top to the bottom. Sometimes the bottom splits first. Then you see these white lumps. They're not pus. They're not a problem. Those white lumps at the bottom of the head, those are just sloughed off skin cells that are trapped under those natural adhesions, which will mature and separate naturally on their own. The I'm main so glad thing you we say do, that because a lot of parents are oh, concerned that it's pus. Yeah, they're concerned. That I, I see a lot of those kind of like, listen, like they call me and say, he's got mass on his penis. It's a white mass. On his penis. I'm like, I know what this is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a smegmoma. But it's, <laughs> but it's a, uh, we try to. You have a good sense with, of humor about all this stuff. <laughs> you, you have to. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing about urology. It's a very intimate field, so you have to have a good sense of humor. The, um, but what we tell them is, like, in the beginning, you don't really need to pull it back. It doesn't need to come back. So you want to, you, you don't want to pull it back more than it is naturally coming. And then it really doesn't really matter what's in the diaper. The diaper is protecting the head. Mm. When they yeah, are poop in the diaper, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. It's protecting it. And then you just, you know, you can gently pull as you know, gently to see what the tip looks like. But if it, if as it, as it matures and opens up, but mostly when they are toilet trained and peeing in the potty, they should gently pull the skin back as far as it goes back easily. So they're not peeing into their foreskin. Mm -hmm. So like if you have a foreskin that's already separated, we don't want them to pee. We want them to gently pull it back so they can pee unobstructed, but also so they don't trap a little bit of urine underneath the foreskin, which can, you know, can cause itchiness or discomfort or even lead to infections. So it, it is normal for a boy with a foreskin whose foreskin pulls back that he's supposed to pull it back when he goes pee and put it forward again, pull it back when they bathe and wash it. Believe it or not, 25% of men are never taught to do this. Mm -hmm. And they think it just you know happens naturally. So the separation and the maturation will happen naturally. Half the kids will pull back completely by age three, 70% by age seven, 98% by age 16. That little bit of sticking inside is going to separate naturally over time. But as it pulls back, when they're peeing, it's good for them to learn to pull it back so they're not peeing into the foreskin. And if you want to assess how good the hygiene is of your child's head of the penis, it should feel dry. It should feel like skin. If it feels sticky or tacky, that's just dried force is dry urine on it. And then they're not doing a good job of, you know, taking care of it. This is for you know children and not, not infants. Infants mostly just leave it alone, wash it like an arm or a leg. And the problem is when people force it or tear those natural adhesions, it's painful and redness. Sometimes you know, we worry about it scarring and scarring tightly over the head of the penis. Mm. So in the beginning, you just want to be very easy and gentle, wash it like an arm or a leg. As they mature, as it opens up naturally, they can pee. Now, what's the chance they're going to get into trouble? So the chance of having uh, an infection underneath the head of the penis or, or balanitis is somewhere around 6 to 8% of boys will have an infection. 
uh, of phimosis of getting uh, tight around the head of the penis. Again, it's about uh, you know that same that same six to eight percent. Half of them will get better with treat with steroid with um, steroid cream. This is the beta methadone ointment. We use that. Half of them get better. I remember when I uh, rotated with you in residency yeah. that you used it so much you had a stamp, uh, a, <laughs> right? Yeah, I had a stamp for me to stamp the prescription. Stamp that prescription of beta methadone. Yeah. 0.05%, right? 0.05%, 0. absolutely. Twice a day, six weeks. It works half the time. So, um, but then the chance that your child will go on to need a circumcision because all these other, you're having problems and you can't, the phimosis doesn't get better or has a very scarred appearance or really like, what's the failure rate of a foreskin? The chance of need a circumcision. Can you explain what a phimosis is? So phimosis is where it's tight over the penis and you can't pull it back. Okay. But where it's really like scarred and fails therapy, passionate, you know, obviously at an age when we expect it to pull back. And so where it's really pathologic, where you're having infections, you're having pain, it used to pull back and now it's tight again, where you really are having problems, the chance of that you might need to go on to get a circumcision about 3%. So for anyone who's, you know, sitting there on the precipice of deciding whether to do it or not, you know, the chance that you, if you don't do a circumcision as a newborn that you're going to need to do it later, it's only 3%. Most mm. people do just fine. Most, most men with a foreskin do just fine. Most of the world has a foreskin. 75% of the world has a foreskin. and uh, Or some of the men <laughs> have a foreskin. And uh, most people do fine. About 3% will get into trouble. So, all right. So this is a natural segue into circumcisions because yeah. um, I've seen you do them. I, I, I And I've also seen you, which I really respect, um, just as a surgeon, I've seen people ask you if their child needs one and you've said no, which I find really admirable, honestly, because I know financially there's a disincentive when you say no to procedures, especially when parents are asking for them. What are your general feelings in terms of parents that want to get circumcised or yeah. circumcise their child? So, all right. So I would look at it this way. So I, I have a very kind of, you know, I've been involved in this since I was uh, one of the task force members for the American Academy of Pediatrics wrote the circumcision guidelines. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was like seven years of my life. I'll never get back. <laughs> <laughs> but you no, know, it was actually a, a really great experience. And the guidelines, and this is still the current guidelines that are still so, uh, so supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics, is the guidelines sort of took the approach that, and I support this very much, is that there are some benefits to circumcision, but the benefits are very modest, right? No decrease risk of urinary tract infections in the first year of life, uh, certain um, STDs, although not the ones that are popular in America. So there's like for syphilis and chancroid, which were popular in the third world, but not very popular there in America. Um, and then mostly decreased risk of tr transmission of HIV it, from unprotected heterosexual intercourse. Um, but these are very, very small risks and very small benefits. At the same time, circumcision does have risks to it. But those risks are very, very small too. And what we, and in a sense, the medical side is kind of a wash, right? So there's never going to be- Medical we really, benefit, we, you mean. Right. Yeah. So the idea is that there's a, we felt that overall in a sort of gestalt, the benefits were probably more than the risk, but the benefits weren't so much that they needed a universal recommendation, right? Right. So it wasn't that it was so great that everyone has to have it. Right. And it wasn't that it was so terrible that nobody could have it. Right. And the debate rages on and people are, keep trying to find a knockout punch medically. And there's never going to be a knockout punch medically. It's never going to be a situation where, oh, this is so great. It's like a vaccine. Right. Or this is so terrible, like you're you know, criminally negligent against your child. It's always going to be there's some benefits, some risks. It's basically a wash. So, but we also recognize 
that most parents aren't really doing it like a medical decision. Some people think of it as cosmetically. Some people is a very deep-seated religious belief, right? right? Some people is their culture tradition. of origin and their or family tradition, personal life experiences. You know, a lot of times my father said, listen, I didn't have it. I got it done when I was 14. I'm never let my kid have that chance. I don't care what you say the number is. You know, so there's personal experiences. Right. So there's a lot of it goes into it. So I look at it in a nuanced way that if you as the parent who is the is well-informed as to the risks and benefits and is acting with beneficence, right, who is thinking only about the best interest of their child in the largest context of their child's life, yes, you have a right to make that decision, what you think is in their best interest. And if you feel this is best for them for reasons that are outside of my purview, the non-medical reasons, then we're happy to, to encourage it and allow you to, to you know, not only have it, but do it in a safe, hygienic fashion by well-trained providers so it's a safe experience. If you as a parent aren't feeling it, then we want to support you and say, it's yes. fine to leave them alone. Yes. Because if you're not feeling it, it's not part of your culture. It's not part right. of who you are. It's not part of your family. I don't want anyone to talk you into thinking that you need to have it. This is not that like last finishing step when, you know, with like, right. <laughs> like, you know that the, the baby has to have. So I'm very supportive of families being able to make that choice and for us being able to, you know, provide them that guidance that, you know, so what, and people say, well, but the benefits outweigh the risk. I said, you know, listen, the benefits, a lot of things outweigh the risk, right? Right. But <laughs> the benefits of double knotting your laces outweighs the risk of double knotting laces, but we don't make everybody double knot their laces, right? right? Or the benefits of being vegetarian outweigh the risk of being vegetarian, but we're right. not telling everybody has to be a vegetarian. Now the HIV benefits real. Okay. Not in America though. I mean, the question is, you know, so this may be a very important global health issue, and certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, but it, for the U.S. experience, it's actually a very, very small benefit. So, like I said, you know, now the, the flip side is there are people who feel like, on an ethical standard, the highest ethical principle is your right to bodily integrity, right? And so, now that's a debate worth having, right? To leave debate to leave over you intact. Right. The idea is that you shouldn't change the, the child's body without their permission. Yes. Right. And, and if that's a debate people want to have, that's a debate worth having. UTIs is not a debate worth having. You know, yes. your STDs or all these other things. The debate, you know, if you want to have an ethical debate about that, then that's worth having. In the States, we use as our ethical standard, best interest of the child. And where it's a non-medical question, we say, well, the person who's able to make that best interest of the child is the well-informed parent. People talk about, well, well you, you know, kids are harmed. Some, in a very small percentage of people do suffer complications. And there's a very interesting article, last week's New Yorker, uh, about an adult with, who had a skin bridge and the whole long thing. I'll encourage you to read it. Um, but some people are harmed. But you know, the truth is parents make decisions all the time that put their children in harm's way to some degree. Right. And then they decide whether it's worth what the benefits are worth it, right? right? So when you sign your kid up for football, you're making a choice. We know there's some potential risks, we know there's some benefits, and you as a parent make the decision whether those benefits are worth it. Right. Or you put them in ski lessons or you know, get help, you know, they get a driver's license, whatever it get is. In the car with <laughs> you. <know>? That's right. <laughs> right. So, you know, the idea that we're letting parents here's make a decision years. if it harms somebody, 
It's like, right. well, that we do that every single day. Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And and do you, from your perspective, do you see a lot of harm from circumcisions? Like, do you see a lot of kids suffer with, you know, erections in the future or um, like where it was done wrong or too much foreskin was removed? Do you, do you see uh, a lot of complications? Ye- well, okay. So it's, it's a little unfair to ask me because I'm the tip of the iceberg. Right. So anybody with anybody with a penis problem is gonna, you know, that, I'm gonna see them, you know. Whereas I don't see, you know, just all the circumstances. You know, I don't have the denominator. In terms of like really significant injuries, we, you know, very very rarely. Um, taking too much skin off, extremely rarely. Leaving a little too much skin on, so it doesn't look right. Yeah, we see that all the time. <laughs> you know, skin bridges, meiosis. However, we did a study in our office where we looked at every kid coming in for a penis complaint. Okay. Okay. Um, and then we looked at whether circumcised or not circumcised, and what the complaint was, and what were the the issues, you know, and how we had to treat that. Okay. And so we found that the percentage of kids coming in with complaints um, related to their circumcision was really actually about the same people coming in complaints related to their foreskin. So the idea is there's no there's no having a circumcision is not going to make it so you never have to see me, but it wasn't like they were dramatically more frequent, you know, because there was the same number of kids that had complaints, the same percentage of kids were having complaints because their foreskin, you know, was too tight or the foreskin didn't open up or they had an infection. So circumcision sense. was not a cure to the penis, right? Nor was it a you know a dramatic risk to the penis. And yeah, do I do revision circumcision? Sure. You know, do I wish I didn't have to? Sure. But, um, but, you know, on the other hand, I do circumcision for kids who go on to have problems at 3%. I think you make some really excellent points. Like the benefit and the risk isn't, isn't quite clear to, to sway somebody one way or the other. And then after that point, you really have to just entrust that a parent will make the best decision for their child as they and do parents, with so many things. Yeah. And they shouldn't feel so much pressure from other people. They shouldn't feel pressure that that's the American thing to do or everybody's right. America. If you look at incidents nationwide, it's really about 50-50 now. If you look at California, it's way under – only 30% of the kids get circumcised by the, at the birth hospital. Mm. Now, some get done in the aftermarket, but it's probably less than 50-50. Even when – this was many years ago. We looked at our numbers. I'm about to do this again where I look at the next 100 kids and see what the ads are. But even when you – know, even here in uh, you know, West Hollywood, it was only about 65 66%, 67% of the kids were circumcised. And so it's really you know, – at, at, at Cedars. Wow. <laughs> and so it's a skewed population. Yeah. So it's, so I think that we don't need to live in a world where all penises look alike. We can live in a world with a little bit of variety. Okay. And so there's no reason that you should feel pressured to do something, you know, trust your instincts that this is your culture. This is a definitional moment for you. I'm not someone to tell you, you shouldn't have it. If you're doing it because you think you have to. Words to live by. Yeah. If, If this is something that you, um, Aren't, you know, you, you don't see the need for it, and uh, then we are going to support you 100% to leave your child intact, and uh, and your child's going to be fine. They're going to be fine either way. Anyway, and I just wish we would debate well the said. real issues. Debate right. the real issues. Yes, I agree with that. Whether or not a child, you're saying whether or not a child can make that decision for themselves when they're younger, if it's best to wait till they're older. At least that's a reasonable topic of discussion rather than whether circumcision causes prostate cancer, you know, it's yes. like, <laughs> yeah, that's true. or prevents prostate cancer, you know, there's articles like that. That's true. And so it's, those are, you know, there's never going to be a, a, a winner. Never a winner gonna... should be accepting a variety, you know, accepting that there's right answers 
what's right for you may not be right for somebody else and people should be allowed to choose what's best for them. I mean, that's a good life philosophy, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't know why that's so hard, but in America, we like to tell people what to do. We tell people that they got my way or the highway. It's very true. <laughs> I agree with that. Um, okay. So a couple, couple last things. Um, so I really like to impress upon parents, like what common questions that I get and explain what is normal behavior. So just from a your, uh, pediatric urologist perspective, so many parents will bring up that their child touches their penis frequently or touches, or a female touches their um, private yeah. area frequently. Is that normal? Yes. Okay. And you know why? It why? feels good. <laughs> so it doesn't because mean it, the character's it's, it's, off or they're going to be... Does it, it's absolutely normal. And it doesn't mean they have a sexual context, right? So right. They're, not, they're not thinking about it in a sexual way, but it feels good. So they right. play with it. They grab it. They squeeze it. Sometimes they're rough on it. And the girls do it too. And I don't try to discourage it. We just try to put it into context like... Okay, maybe not do this, you know, at, you know, in school, but it's okay to do this in private, you know, when you're on your own. Yes, and and okay, and if um, is there a certain age that's too young when you notice it? No, not yeah. really. I yeah. agree with you. I agree. And what about noticing erections? Sometimes parents will see an erection yeah. in a little baby, and they and they get nervous. That's not normal. What is it you're all? Yeah, so it, there's tremendous very. So the kids all do have erections. They have the the, the machinery all works for an erection. Um, Usually the concern that we have is parents who don't see an erection and mm. they worry, why aren't they having erections? And it's just very variable. Some kids literally, every time you take the diaper off, if the window's open, they get an erection. Other kids, you know, they never see an erection, but they all get erections and they all get erections later on. So uh, it's something that should just not be worried about. If your kid gets lots of erections, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine. I like it. All right, good. So it shows you the machinery is working, but it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's not abnormal. Not abnormal. Great. What about um, any emergencies parents should be aware of? You know, I, it's such a it's such an important area. Is there, is there anything that parents should be aware of when they should absolutely see a doctor? Yeah, the biggest emergency for pediatric urologists is testicular torsion. That's one of the testicle twists. So if your child has sustained testicular pain, okay. Um, so I don't mean they, it hurts for a second, you know, or hurt for a minute. But if they're having significant pain in their testicle, particularly if you see redness, swelling, or absolutely if they have testicle pain and nausea and vomiting, that's nausea and vomiting is a huge red flag. That's an emergency trip to the ER. Okay. okay. So now just, you know, if you have pain for 10 minutes and it goes away, that's something different. But if you're having sustained testicular pain, you know, certainly anytime you have pain and nausea and vomiting, that's 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 the big red flag. If you're having pain and say, you know, it's not just like annoying, but, or like, oh, it only hurts if, you know, I, I, uh, I squeeze it really hard. You know, it's not like that, but if you're having really significant pain, they're crying or they have, you know, they're complaining or you see it redness and swelling, we need to get that checked out right away because testicular torsion is when the testicle twists around its blood supply. It's like your testicles holding its breath. Okay. Mm. If we get to it in six hours, we can save it by t 12 hours. It's 50, 50 by 24 hours. It's game over. Half of all torsions end up in the testicle being removed. Wow. So that's, you know, usually for delay in presentation. The other thing, the problem is that it's uncommon. So it's about one in 4,000. The more common thing is where you have torsion of the appendix testis, like a little nubbin off the testicle that can twist. That's about one out of 400. And sometimes it's going to be hard to tell, and you might not be able to tell without the ultrasound. So that's why we do encourage people to, you know, be, take that seriously. So sustained pain, 
we we tell you, you know, if you call, I'm sure if you call the Patreon, they'll tell you, they're not going to tell you, go take a nap and come back and see if it's still a problem or call me tomorrow morning. They're going to tell you, yeah, listen, you need to go get that checked out. And uh, most of the time it involves the ER, but they're really good about getting ultrasound right away. And that's and, how we differentiate that. And torsion of the appendix of the testes, that's treated by ibuprofen, right? Just to let people right, know. Right. Just rest and Motrin. Right. Not surgery. Right. Correct. Correct. That's great. But the surgery for the testicle if it's really twisted, is uh, an emergency surgery. This has been fantastic. I so appreciate your time. Um, are there any any last minute tips of advice that you want to throw out there? Anything I missed uh, that we didn't talk about? Yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, uh, I really appreciate you willing to talk about pediatrology because you know we don't we don't talk about it a lot you never in, in 10 years of er you never saw a urology a good urology story you know watching on tv so i really appreciate the chance to bring it up because these are things that happens all the time thank you i you know i also tell people that listen you know it's, it's always it, it's it's you should feel comfortable bringing up these issues with your pediatricians because the pediatricians really do know a lot about these issues and are a great yes. resource to start with. So don't be embarrassed to bring it up or feel like you can only talk to the specialist and that we're here for you. There's lots of us uh, in town and they're all over the country and we're here for you for the, if you have concerns and uh, um, a lot of times we just provide reassurance, but sometimes that can be helpful. So we, uh, we're always happy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your time. You're, you're really wonderful. Oh, my Such pleasure. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Lucky to Thank know you. you. Thanks Thank for taking you. care of all our patients too that I send you. I really appreciate uh, it. I, I really appreciate it. Appreciate your confidence. 